I have done my very best to stay on top of all of the nonfiction Christian books published in 2014 in the hopes that I will produce a list of my favorite books of the year. And of the 40 or so best books this year that have caught my attention, one book instantly became one of my favorites and is sure to finish in my top five. The book is about the transforming power of God's beauty, as told through the eyes of Jonathan Edwards. The book is titled, Edwards on the Christian Life, Alive to the Beauty of God. The author, Dane Ortland, serves as the Bible publishing director at Crossway. George Marsden wrote the foreword. Edwards is not the only theologian to helpfully explain God's beauty, but he may have been the best at it. Early in the book, Ortland situates him among the great minds, quote, Augustine gave us a theology of will-transforming grace that liberates the Christian life by replacing our loves. Luther left us the utter settledness of God's favorable verdict over our morally fickle and despair-prone lives. Calvin gave us the majesty of God over every detail of the Christian's life. Owen brought us into the joy of loving communion with the triune God. Bunyan left us with the hope and courage in battling through the ups and downs of the Christian journey. Bavinck's legacy is the restorative dimension of divine grace, grace opposed not to nature, but only to sin. Spurgeon gave us in unparalleled language the gratuity of the gospel against a backdrop of an utterly sovereign Lord. Lewis expands our imaginations in seeing the Christian life as a painfully joyous longing to be part of the larger story that makes sense of all things. To become a Christian is to become alive to beauty. This is the contribution to Christianity that Jonathan Edwards makes and that no one has made better. End quote. Aliveness to God's beauty is a pristine theme Edwards simply mastered. He saw the glory and beauty of God all over Scripture. It was the tenor of his ministry. It was, for him, the center of the Christian life. The picture of Jonathan Edwards as a hellfire preacher simply fails to understand this. Edwards may be most famous for scaring people out of hell with divine wrath, Ortland writes, but Edwards labored far more diligently to woo people into heaven by preaching the beauty of God and demonstrating why God is beautiful and his compassion towards sinners. Dane's book is strong evidence of Edwards' emphasis here, taking what Edwards saw and building it out to explain how God's beauty intersects with the daily life of the Christian. So I recently called Dane to talk with him about his new book and why God's beauty is relevant for our ordinary lives filled with busyness and temptations and even with bouts of depression. And I began by asking him to help explain in the first place, what is God's beauty? Yeah, God's beauty is his very godness. It's who he is. It's what makes him God. It is the reason that boring preaching is so tragic. It's the reason rules, heavy parenting always backfires. It's specifically what makes him more like the Shire than like Mordor, even though Mordor is where all the raw power is, because there's a loveliness, a sereneness. That was one of Edward's favorite words, a, a sweetness, a sereneness about God. That's his beauty. So one thing, Tony, that I wanted to make real clear in the book is that God's beauty is seen supremely in his compassion and mercy and love. And of course, if anyone had a robust sense of the wrath and righteousness and justice of God, uh, and rightfully so, given who he is, it's Jonathan Edwards. But what I take away from being immersed in Jonathan Edwards in recent years is his lovely, tender mercy and compassion. 
in one sermon he says that when we finally see Christ in his glory in the next life and see his beauty, we're going to be drawn to it not because of his glories and beauties, greatness and majesty, but because of Christ's condescension and gentleness and grace, and that's the beauty of God. For Jonathan Edwards, there's another sermon that he wrote very early on in his ministry where he says that God, the reason God created the world... Now, when we hear Edwards saying, the reason God created the world, I think most of us expect him to say a certain thing, namely that he created the world to glorify himself, and Edwards says that, of course. But there's one lovely sermon where he says, the reason God created the world is to obtain a spouse toward whom God could open and pour forth the infinite fountain of his love and grace that was in his heart from all eternity, something like that. So the beauty of God is is not mainly seen in, say, the size of the universe, but rather in the tender compassion of the Creator in light of that great size of the universe. That's so good. So so true to how Edwards understood created reality. God's beauty seems very abstracted from my life. So how, how does Edwards connect the beauty of God with my joy? I think you're right, Tony, in the premise behind the question, namely that divine beauty, the beauty of God, it does just when we take the phrase right off the cuff, it seems very ethereal and abstract and come on, you know, I got to go to work and answer emails and live my life here. And so I think there's sort of a facile answer one could give about, you know, uh, we see God in his beauty and that gives us joy. And that's true, but how does it work? Seeing the beauty of God, connecting the dots between that and my joy. When you or I rolled out of bed this morning, what today is actually going to happen in my or your life and soul such that we put our heads on the pillow tonight and look back at the day and say, yeah, actually the beauty of God intersected with my life and generated and nurtured joy today. And what Jonathan Edwards has taught me, I mean, there are a thousand angles we could probably take to answer that question, but here are a few things that he's taught me. One, it's the beauty of God's tender mercy that calms me down, lets me breathe again, slows my heart's frantic scurrying about, because in all of my ups and downs today, emotionally, and all my failings and perhaps wondering, have I failed? There's so much ambiguity in living as a moral being and all my anxiety. He is an undeterred and gentle father who has adopted and justified me. Now, Edwards really felt that. You know, there's an aroma when you read his sermons especially, and even his treatises, but especially the sermons or his letters uh, that you smell, that he really felt safe, and loved, and calmed, or to use the word that we used earlier, serene, because of uh, God and his gentle care for him as a father. Two, the world tells me, and my own inclinations, I think, reinforce it, that selfish indulgence, lustful in the broad meaning of the word lust, indulgence is where the fun is, is where excitement is. And Edwards discovered and says all over the place that quietly enjoying 
the beauty of God, that is, communing with him in his Son, who is the mighty and radiant friend of sinners like me, quietly enjoying that is what, to use a word Edwards delightfully used, happifies us. That's how we get happified. In fact, he said in one place that no one can look on God in our fallen state and live. And he said the reason for that isn't because it's not what I always thought it was growing up, namely because of God's wrath and because of his purity in a other transcendent kind of way, but rather because our joy in looking at God would be too overwhelming for our frail nature. It would incinerate us because we'd be too happy. We couldn't handle it. That is so profoundly true. And uh, related to God's beauty as a calming influence, explain why personal holiness calms us and settles the heart from the craziness of what sin does to us. How does holiness, personal holiness, bring peace to the Christian life? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. It's one I want, I want to continue to learn myself. Isaiah 28 has an amazing little statement embedded in it where God says, the one who believes will not be now, how would we answer that as evangelicals today? Most of us would say, will not be condemned, will not be cast out, and so on. And that's all true, but it's not what that text says. That text says, he who believes will not be in haste. What an amazing thing for God to tell us, because, I mean, I, I wake up in the morning, I go about my day, and if I don't deliberately shove back all the clamoring good reasons to be anxious, then I'm going to live in haste today, and that will manifest itself by being snippy with my wife, impatient with my kids, irritable at work, um, more prone to indulge in temptation, and a thousand other things. And Edwards had a view of the Christian life and a view of God and an understanding of the gospel in which he saw that one major thing the gospel does, the Christian life does, is calms us down. It just settles us down. That's so good. I hope every Christian uh, can read chapter four of your book, which you titled Joy, the Fuel of the Christian Life. I mean, the whole book is wonderful, but this chapter is profound, and I think it it will change the life of any Christian who has never really thought about um, joy in the Christian life very much. And uh, like most people, I presume, uh, who grew up in churches like I did, um, who essentially heard that joy is the result of living the Christian life well, it's joy is sort of a byproduct. It's a, it's an add-on. If you do all the other things right, then you can have joy. And here in this chapter, you say that joy is the fuel of the Christian life. So, Dane, are you saying that the Christian life does not run properly without joy? I grew up the same way you did, Tony. And actually, I want to be careful in answering that because for some Christians, I think, even to hear the word joy immediately arouses cynicism. And understandably, in light of the darkness that each of us tends to go in and out of throughout this fallen world, and the shallowness of so much that we read in Christian books today on joy, and the frothiness of so much personal counsel that we might hear even in our own congregations when we're walking in the valleys of life. But Jonathan Edwards 
is really preventive medicine for cynicism because he unpacks what joy is in a way that rings so powerfully true to what life is, how it actually works under the sun. He says joy is not loud, ostentatious. It's not people jumping up and down at a Hillsong conference. I listen to that music, by the way. It's not a knock on that. But that's not Edwards's depiction of the heart, the core, the pulsating, animating center of what real joy is. He said it's quiet and calm and sweet. It's a, it's a reordering of a disordered soul. As we just said, it's a calming of a frenetic soul. So yes, Christian life does not run properly without joy, to answer your question. But that doesn't mean that you need to watch more Letterman. Laughing is not a reliable joy gauge. You know, Proverbs says, even in laughter, the heart may ache. So the times in my life when others might be most tempted to say to me, Dane, why so somber today, are actually some of, I think, some of my most joy-filled <laughs> and other times when I'm laughing are some of the most hollow and miserable moments in my life because there's a surfacey, um, bubbly frothiness that laughs and jokes that is deeply unhappy and not at rest. And conversely, there's a quiet sobriety that fights back the tears. The joy is so intense. We've all met people who couldn't go more than 30 seconds of talking without a snide trivializing, laugh-inducing remark. And that's not joy. That's For Edwards, that's the opposite of joy. In fact, he makes a fascinating observation in Distinguishing Marks uh, of the difference between the local revival in the mid-1730s and then the transatlantic Great Awakening of the 1740s. He said in the first revival, looking back for, at both revivals, he said in the first one, there was real joy. It was an authentic revival there in Northampton. But it was manifested in a lot of levity, was the word he used, and laughing. And he said a loss of the distance between oneself and God. And he said in the second revival, there was also real joy. But it was an even deeper joy, and it manifested itself by going in the opposite direction. It was solemnizing. And I think that's really a word in season for us today. What is joy? What is happiness? A lot of times, it doesn't look like what we expect it to look like. Yeah, that's so true. There's a, a real danger in substituting the joy of God with the chuckles of entertainment, and uh, bubbly frothiness does not fit my description of Edwards. <laughs> so <laughs> so what, uh, what would it have been like to go on horseback with Edwards through the woods? Wow. I, I bet that Dane, the 25-year-old, would be super bored and not enjoy it and off-put. And I bet that Dane, if he's still around as a 75-year-old, would just love it because he would be a little more seasoned, a little more sobered, a little um, a little more in tune with, um, I don't know, uh, eternity, death, what matters. And Edwards, you get the sense he, he wasn't um, he wasn't a life of the party kind of guy. But I don't when I'm when I'm in darkness, I don't want to go to the life of the party guy to unburden my soul. But give me Jonathan Edwards on a horse riding through the Connecticut Valley, and then that's much better. What strikes me when I read Edwards or the Psalms, for that matter, is that that true God-centered joy seems to be possessed in the desire for God. 
Um, in other words, the possession of joy and the longing for joy are sometimes almost synonymous. Uh, do you get that sense in Edwards? Yes. I'm thinking of a place in Religious Affections where Edwards uh, is talking about David, and he calls him a man, something like a man of earnest thirstings and pantings after God, comma, delight and joy in God. And I think what Jonathan Edwards means by that sentence is he's putting in synonymous parallelism, thirsting and panting for God with delight and joy in God. So in other words, I think he would say one dimension of joy with a capital J is desire. The longing is itself a satisfying of the longing. Uh, You see this in David Brainerd's journal as well, and I wonder what kind of mutual influence there might have been there. It comes through very strongly with Brainerd. Interesting. And probably nobody has impacted me more on the way I understand holiness than Edwards has. In my own thinking, beauty and holiness got severed at some point, and Edwards came in and merged those two things back together for me. He taught me through the Psalms that God's holiness is his attractive beauty, or what the psalmist calls God's splendor. And out of that point comes a profound practical implication, and I think it gets picked up by our friend Michael Reeves in his new book, Christ Our Life. Uh, Reeves talks about holiness when he writes this, quote, What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. That is the root of true God-likeness. Then he writes this, Nothing is more holy, nothing is more holy than a heartfelt delight in Christ, end quote. Now, that, that's a profound sentence. So what would Edwards say here, Dane, is, is heartfelt delight in Christ an act of personal holiness? Wow. I like what Mike says there. One of the ways that Edwards has messed with my understanding of the Christian life is how he talks about holiness and how he speaks of the loveliness and the beauty. Um, what immediately leaps to our mind when we see the word holiness? Austerity coldness, grim-faced, jaw-set, and so on. In one of his early sermons called The Way of Holiness, Edwards says something that's totally programmatic to the whole way that his ministry and the emphases of his ministry unfolds. He says, Holiness is a most beautiful, lovely thing. Men are apt to drink in strange notions of holiness from their childhood, as if it were a melancholy, morose sour thing. And Edward says, but there is nothing in it but what is sweet and ravishingly lovely. It is the highest beauty and amiableness. It is a divine beauty. This world is like mire and filth compared to that soul which is sanctified. It is of a sweet, lovely, delightful, serene, calm, there are those ideas again, serenity, calmness, and still nature. That's the end of the Edwards quote. I love that. That corrects me, because if you wake me up at three in the morning and tell me without pausing to think, what is holiness? That's not what I'm going to say. So holiness is calming. It is the only route by which I can actually enjoy my life, (laughs) because I'm not delighting in all of the world's fraudulent offers. Holiness is quietly thrilling. I was on ESPN.com last year, and reading a a tragic story about three teens who were sitting on their porch in Oklahoma, and they shot and killed a runner. It was on ESPN.com because this was a a college athlete, baseball player. He killed a jogger, and when they were asked about it, 
their answer for why they did it was, we were bored, so we decided to kill someone. Now, that's where sin takes us. Hell is going to be hell, among other reasons, because it's so boring. And uh, so holiness is, can I say this? Holiness is fun. Holiness is playful. It is clean. It is bright, not dark, because we've been swept up into the love of the Trinity. We've been justified and ratified. We've become human again. And uh, so how else would you want to live but in the brightness of holiness? Yes, amen. That's beautiful and counterintuitively true. Thank you, Dane. Um, There's a famous image in Homer in his Odyssey about the luring enchantment of sin, and I've heard many preachers use it, usually as a setup to explain why they use covenant eyes on a computer or something. But there's a contrast between Ulysses and Jason. Um, Can you share this illustration and why it matters and how they differ in their responses to the allure of sinful temptations? Well, first I would say I have covenant eyes on my computer, and I need it there. Uh, and I do commend it, but that is the steering wheel to the purity in my life, not the engine. And the illustration from uh, the Odyssey is an illustration that really gets at what's the engine or what actually drives you forward in holiness. And I got it from Sam Storm sitting in a systematic theology class in Jenks Hall at Wheaton College in the spring of 2001. It's uh, this, in Homer's uh, Odyssey, Ulysses, the hero of the story, has his men tie him to the mast of the boat, and he has the sailors plug their ears with wax because they're going to go by the sirens, and Ulysses wants to hear the sirens' unspeakably beautiful singing. But it's it's fatally beautiful singing because if you hear it, you cannot help but jump into the water and swim towards it, thereby dashing yourselves on the rocks and dying. It's so enchantingly beautiful. And so he has himself tied to the mast, and they go along on by, and he's, you know, uh, struggling when he hears the song. He wants to be freed, but the men ignore him as he has instructed them to, and he lives to tell of it. Well, when Jason of Jason and the Argonauts goes by, he takes a different strategy, and he, he sails by, but he brings with him the world's greatest harpist, who, as they begin to near the island where the sirens are, this, he instructs this harpist to begin to pluck and play as they sail by. Why? So that Jason doesn't have to be tied to the mast of willpower, we could say, but he's compelled by a higher loveliness. Now, that's a picture of Jonathan Edwards' theology of the Christian life. Sin is the enchanting allure of what is going to kill you. And you can't help, I can't help, but jump into the water and get slammed against the rocks of sin and judgment and hell and death. I have no willpower to stop. I cannot stop myself. I need a higher loveliness, a more compelling beauty. I'm only going to do what I love to do, and I'm going to be that way forever, this life and the next. That will never change. I cannot function any other way. I have a beauty thirst that I am going to try to quench no matter what. So the six-year-old who leaves his wife for a younger woman, the teen looking at porn, the banker checking his personal accounts every hour, the pastor feeding his soul on the nicotine of congregational approval, all of these are taking a doll and putting makeup on it and treating it like a spouse and expecting it to love us like a spouse when the real person is in the next room wanting to love you truly. 
That is so beautifully said. Thank you, Dane. And I want to make this point even more practical. I want to press in here because it's it's wonderful to relish in the theology of who God is and what he's done. Um, it, in your book, you write this on page 79, quote, True joy derives not from God and job, family, sex, friends, food, rest, driving, buying a home, reading a book, drinking coffee, but from God in these things. Every taste of beauty in the world, from the roar of waterfalls to the chatter of birds to the richness of true friendship to the ecstasy of sexual experience, is a drop from the ocean of divine beauty. Every pleasure is an arrow pointing back to him. Joy is from, and only finally, in God." End quote. That's beautifully true, and you had me at coffee. <laughs> so, so help me apply this. Next time I go to the local coffee shop, how do I simultaneously delight in the beauty of God without idolizing or ignoring the wonderful blessing of coffee? Um, or is it even right to say that this is a simultaneous thing? I mean, how self-consciously must God be on my mind for me to enjoy coffee rightly? How do we do this? The first thing I think I would say, Tony, is no, God need not be consciously, perpetually on the mind in order to rightly enjoy a cup of coffee. And if I'm wrong, then I'm living in a lot of sin every morning for about an hour. And it's a shackling of the consciences of Christians to communicate that the higher the percentage of time they're consciously thinking about God while gardening or enjoying coffee or watching the bulls play, the better they're doing spiritually. That's an unhelpful burdening of consciences. Yesterday, I walked home from Crossway and uh, walked a beautiful day outside, and my whole family was out front with some of the neighbor kids, and a few of my boys, I have three boys and a daughter, a few of the older boys ran up to me and started pleading with me to play rugby with them in the front yard. Now, while playing rugby in my front yard with my seven- and four- and two-year-old boys, do I want them constantly thinking about me? No! I want them to enjoy the game. Because I love them, I want them to enjoy playing. And then thank me at the end. Oh, yes. And acknowledge that uh, I was giving that to them. Now, what Edwards would say is, what is enjoyed in rugby in the front yard with your family, what is enjoyed there is what is seen of God in playing that game in the affection between the father and child, in the competition, in the wind on your face, in the light of the sun, in the aliveness of that experience, and so on. All this is, in a non-weird way, mediating God to us, showing us God, giving us a whiff of heaven. Cornelius Plantinga said, Joy comes not from a lover or a landscape, but through them. And that's a very Edwardsian statement. In fact, Edwards said that when loved ones of ours die, and maybe this sounds cold and, and uh, unfeeling, but he said, when loved ones of ours die, we don't ultimately have any reason to mourn because we are going to experience forever in heaven, in Christ, everything in the loved one that we loved. It's all in Christ. So we're going to get to heaven, and it's not as if we're going to have all these joys. We're going to have lemonade and sunsets and a thousand other things and Jesus. Edwards would say, Christ himself recapitulates and sums up himself all the other joys. So if you have Christ, you have all joy. Yes, amen. Let's be clear, that's not necessarily a good idea for a funeral sermon, but <laughs> yes, I mean, we're only human. Yes, he, he, we're, we're human beings. We're not angels. We're not omniscient. We, we move through 
life, and our brains can handle one thing at a time. And he would not want us to try to abstain from enjoying the sun that right now is shining down on the back parking lot of Crossway that I'm looking out at. Finally, uh, what would you say to a Christian who is right now listening and realizing that they're not, they're not enjoying the beauty of God? Uh, their spiritual life seems dry and barren, they're depressed. Uh, what do you think Edwards, the pastor, yeah. would say to them? And that's really the question, isn't it, Tony? I mean, if we, if we answered all the other questions well and didn't ask and answer this one, then uh, it, it really doesn't net out as a win for the listeners. So what to say? There's lots to say. Here's some things that come to mind. Number one, you're not abnormal, so relax. We all go through that from time to time, that uh, dryness and barrenness. Two, your stale numb condition wouldn't worry Edwards as long as it does worry you. And it does because you're asking the question. In other words, Edwards had such a rich understanding of regeneration, the new birth. He knew an unregenerate heart wouldn't be bothered and probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast and so on. Number three, God's verdict over your life is not strengthened by the intensity or weakened by the lack of intensity of your enjoyment of the beauty of God. In fact, part of the beauty of God is that, that his paternal care and love for us isn't hinging on our experience of that beauty. That's part of the beauty. (laughs) It's the glory and loveliness of God that he overlooks our sluggishness at his glory and loveliness. Uh, Fourth, if you're feeling dry and barren because you're living in sin, and you know it, then what do you expect your life to be like? Um, Five, one day, if you're in Christ, one day you'll look back on this dry, barren, adversity-filled life, and this life will be the vague and hazy and ethereal one, and all the cumulative pain of this world, which when we're in it just about breaks us, is going to be rewound and undone, and actually be part of our final radiance and resplendence and glory. So hang on. And finally, I would say, uh, stay in the Psalms. That's what the Psalms are for. They're in the Bible to give dry and barren human beings something to say to God to get some sanity restored when left to themselves, all they want to do is go back to bed under the covers or go get drunk or go kill themselves because of the pain of life. That was Dane Ortland, the Bible publishing director at Crossway from his office at Crossway in Wheaton, Illinois. His new book is titled Edwards on the Christian Life, Alive to the Beauty of God. It's definitely worth checking out and worth your time and money. Thank you for listening to episode number 33 of the Authors on the Line podcast. As always, this podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. It comes to you free of charge because our ministry is supported by generous financial donors like you. So thank you. To find a full archive of our previous episodes, search for Authors on the Line in the iTunes Store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening to the Authors on the Line podcast.